If you've come here today and you haven't been in the last three weeks, you're kind of coming in at the end of the movie. So I hope that's okay with you. It should be fine. Um, but we've been doing a series called I Am. And the whole purpose of the series is, is about identity and it's about, it's about who you are, finding yourself. And so for the last four weeks, we've spoken... The first week was I am in Christ. It was setting a foundation for the series. The second one was I am treasured. Thank you. I'm in Christ, I'm treasured. Then last week when I was in George, Ingrid picked it up and she spoke on I am a child of God. Isn't that a beautiful song that we just sang? I'm a child of God. And then today we're going to be closing off the series with I am loved. So this is an important one as well. And one which I've, I think will be helpful for everyone here. Anyone here seen The Notebook? Did it make you cry? Did it? <laughs> you soppy. Okay, it's a tearjerker, I'll give you that. The, the Notebook was a beautiful movie. And for those of you who don't know it, I'm about to spoil it for you. But if you haven't seen it by now, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If you haven't seen it by now, you deserve for it to be spoiled for you. Okay. <laughs> You need to go watch it, okay? But I'm going to tell you the story, and, and the summary of the story is this. There is a lady, and there is a guy. Sounds like pretty much every story ever written. Wow, excuse the passion. And um, so obviously Ryan Gosling is the eye candy. And uh, there's, there's the guy and the girl, and they fall in love, and they have this whirlwind, romantic, up-and-down, hectic uh, romance, and they get involved, and it's it's incredible, and it's sad, and it's amazing, and and uh, there's lots of tension, and there's a third party, as there always is, and uh, the whole thing is quite complicated, but then it ends really beautifully, and they get together, and everything's awesome, and then they grow old together, and that's the picture on the right-hand side over there, and they grow old, and then what happens is she de develops Alzheimer's, and so she forgets who he is, and she's actually got to go into a facility, like a home or something like that, and he visits her every day, and every day he reads out of the notebook, and in that notebook, the one you can see over there, he's telling stories about the way that they fell in love with each other, the, everything that happened, and the stories, and how it all worked, and all the romance, and the passion, and that's basically the movie, is him reading out of the notebook, and slowly throughout the, the morning, and the afternoon, she kind of gets glimpses of light, because at first she's, you know, she says, who are you, what are you doing in my room, kind of thing, I don't know you, and, he, and then he starts with the story. And slowly she kind of starts to come around and remember bits and pieces of it. But by the end, by kind of dinner time, evening time, you get this amazing thing that happens. And she becomes lucid. And she, and she starts and she remembers completely. And she goes, oh, Duke, like it's you. I can't believe it. I love you so much. And there's these moments. There's just a few gaps where they can dance and they can love each other and they can remember each other. And then... Who are you? What are you doing in my room? Get out. And it becomes like that again. And it's a difficult and, and every time. <sighs> How embarrassing. <clears throat> Man up. Okay. So what happens? Come on now. It's all a show. I'm not really... It's a lot of dust on the stage today. Anyway. So he, every single day. I mean, his heart is ripped out of his chest. 
And every day he goes back for those few moments where they both remember each other. So it's a really powerful and brilliant and beautiful story. Well, I thought it was. And, um, and the reason I bring that up is because the Bible speaks about us in a similar kind of way. It's, you know, it's, it's, the Bible puts the story of the human race as one of forgetting who we are. Forgetting that we are loved. Forgetting whose we are. And there's two things that happen. And, and right now, I'm just going to recapture this a little bit into what we've been into before, before I move on to new stuff. But here's the thing, and here's what happens. When we forget that we're loved, like she did, when we forget that we're loved, we start to look for our identity in earthly things. I don't know if you've ever noticed this about yourself. But you start to find your worth, your value, your identity in the stuff that is around you. And for the sake of trying to be cool, I've made them all start with a P. So the first thing, and we spoke about Lance Armstrong, achievement, performance, how you can look for your value in those things. There's nothing wrong with achieving, but when your value is linked and your worth and your identity is linked to achieving, there's a problem. Because there's always going to be someone who's better than you. There can only be one number one of anything in the world, and it's just a matter of time before someone else comes and knocks you off your pedestal. So if your identity is wrapped in that thing, it's, that, that fall is that much harder. So we find our worth in performance at school, varsity, that promotion at work, that sport, that hobby, whatever it might be. And then you have an injury, and your whole identity feels like you are shattered. We look for our identity and our pedigree. Now, I'll be dead honest. I find this to be more of a thing here in Crawford in the town of Crawford than I have found in the city. Because people are kind of anonymous in cities. But here, you know, everyone knows everyone's mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother, and you know which farm they come from, and you know their history, and you know exactly what happened. And people are very proud of their heritage. There's nothing wrong with being proud of your heritage. Unless your identity is wrapped up in it. Then there's a problem. The status of the family you come from, the area that you live in, the kinds of people that you socialize with, or perhaps possessions. This is maybe one of the more common ones for us. What we have, the house we've got, the car we drive, the clothes we wear, and sometimes our identity can be wrapped up in that stuff. You know, I need money and I'm driving this car. There's no way I'm going to sell this car and drive an Uno. Are you mad? I'm not going to go shopping for clothes there. Are you insane? Because our identity is so much wrapped in the stuff that we have, the stuff that we wear, the stuff that it, it's just not a healthy space. And some of us, of course, in popularity and approval, the people we want to be accepted by, the people we're trying to impress, and those things become everything. But the problem, and we all know this, the problem with all of these things is that they lead to unhealthy and destructive emotions. You see, if your identity is wrapped up in stuff, if it's wrapped up in what you've got, then there's always going to be a sense of superiority when you're dealing with someone who doesn't have what you have. As much as you try to avoid it, if your identity is in the fact that you drive this car, then people who drive that car, shame, man. But the other th is true as well. You see, because when you see someone who is Sports Illustrated good-looking and your identity is wrapped up in the way that you look and in your popularity, 
There's an inferiority that comes with that. When you see someone's house and you go visit them and it looks like it should be on top billing, oh, you feel like, please don't come visit my house. Because you're wrapped up in your stuff. So it's unhealthy. Anxiety is a big part of this. When you've wrapped up your identity in stuff and in people and and possessions and pedigree, anxiety is a big deal. Because the more stuff you've got, the more stuff you've got to lose. So worry and anxiety is just a part of, am I going to get the next thing? Can I afford the next thing? What happens if the stuff gets stolen? What happens if something goes wrong? Despair. Despair is an unhealthy emotion that we feel if our identity is wrapped up in this stuff. If someone you build your identity on, you see, if if you are building your identity around a person, a partner or a child or something like that, when that relationship doesn't work for some reason, it's not just like with everyone else where they just there's a rejection. It guts you because you're wrapped up in this relationship so much so that it tears you apart when it goes wrong. And then, of course, emptiness. I think we've all experienced this. I know that I have, particularly with material stuff. You know, there's only one thing worse than wanting something badly and not being able to get it, and that's wanting something, getting it, and then realize you're just as empty as you were before you had it. That's a terrible space to be. Do you mind if I blow my nose? Thank you. What did you say? Gross. I dare you. Okay. (laughs) You see what's happening here? So as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we were designed to find our identity vertically. But the problem is we so often find our identity horizontally in the stuff that we have and in the people we know. So the second thing, when we forget we're loved, firstly we look for our identity in earthly things. The second thing is we actually forget how to love. Now, the kind of love that comes naturally for all of us is a conditional love. You think of how every single relationship starts. It starts with cute little smiles, you know, little conversations, little talking, butterflies. Does anyone remember having butterflies when you met your husband or your wife? But, of course, they weren't your husband or your wife then. And um, do you remember that? And every time you saw them, you felt, like, nervous, like a little bit ill. (laughs) Like, where does this come from? I remember that so clearly. I remember driving past the church because I met Sarah at church. She was, yeah, it's a good place. It's the best place to meet someone, okay? Um, and, I, and I remember driving past the church and wondering if she was there. And just wondering if she was there made me like all like, oh, what if I see her? You know? Like all of a sudden I care if my hair's out of place, like before I go out and what I'm wearing. and Like it's like it weird. But that's how relationships start, and it's so beautiful and so normal, and it's so great, and sparks are there, and it's chemistry, and it's awesome. But then you kind of get to know someone, and they see a side of you that maybe they hadn't seen before, and you see sides of them that they hadn't seen before, and, and, and it doesn't take too long before you're kind of used to each other. And then they kind of sometimes irritate you. I mean, not Sarah, but other people. <laughs> other relationships, obviously. But you know what? It's not long before you say some hurtful stuff. It's not long before you do some stupid stuff. It's not long before you make poor decisions. And you know what? That love, that infatuation, that, that incredible, those butterflies, that, that, that sense of love that you have for that person, 
you know, there comes a time where you, where you kind of just are like, you know what, is this the time I, should, I just need to put this thing aside and find someone else? There's millions of other people here. Because that's the kind of love we're used to. It's conditional. Everything's great when we're great. Everything's great when you love me. It's easy to love people who are lovable. It's easy to love people who laugh at your jokes. But when the rubber hits the road and, it's, and people are a little bit mean or a little bit nasty or not so lucky anymore, well, then we switch off the love thing, don't we? That's, the way, that's unfortunately the way we wired. And it's not a great thing. See, real love is unconditional. Now, we know that. It's sacrificial. It's vulnerable. True love can be betrayed and still say what you did was wrong. But I love you. That's not easy. I understand that. But you see, that's true love. It's not the love that we're used to. It's not the love that's easy for us. So the question is, where are we meant to find our identity? And how can we learn how to really love? The answer, I believe, is this. We need to understand and grasp the love of God. That's the key. You want to learn to love rightly or correctly or in the best possible way or in the, desi- the way that you were designed to love? We have to understand and grasp the love of God that He has for us. Because when you know that you're loved properly, you can love properly. And so I want to explore that a little this morning. Are you still with me? Okay, perfect. I've got three of you with me. That's good news. So, what we're battling here is amnesia, like Ellie in the movie, you know, is that we just forget. And even as Christians, we forget how much we loved. And we need someone to remind us. And you know what? Today I get to be that person. How cool is that? I get to be Duke, and you get to be Ellie. Okay? And I get to remind you of how much God loves you. That's what I'm doing here today. So, I want to pray before I launch into this next part. God, I pray that through this message you would open our eyes, help us to understand how much you do love us. Pray that you would erase the lie that we've believed. Help us to know how you feel about us. In Jesus' name, amen. So you're hearing that God loves you. Thank you. You've heard that before lots of times. Listen, if you've been in church once or twice, you've heard that God loves you. If you've been at school in CU once or twice, you've heard someone will say, God loves you. If you're in kids' church once or twice, you're going to hear the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Okay? We know God loves us. Well, we kind of know it. We've heard it. But here's the question, and this is important. How do you know God loves you? How do you know that God loves you? Because the Bible tells you so? Well, that's one of the reasons. How else do you know that God loves you? How do you know that you are loved and treasured by God himself? I want to give you four really quick things. And number one is this. How do you know that God loves you? Number one, God is love. 1 John 4 verse 8, it's a lovely short verse. You want to memorize scripture today? Here it is. God is love. Can you say God is love? You memorize scripture. You're amazing. Okay, that's it. You've done it. You can go home. 1 John 4 verse 8 says God is love. There's more to God than love. He's all-powerful. He's great. He's mighty. He's holy. We know that. But all of those qualities are defined by His love. Here's an interesting thing. Did you know that only the Christian God can have love as His essential quality? 
only the Christian God. Because only the Christian God is a trinity. Trinity is two words, tri, which is obviously three, and unity, which is one. So it's three and one, trinity. The Christian God is the only God that is a trinity. It's a mystery. And Jesus makes it clear. He reveals that there's one God, but within that one God, there's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one, but they are distinct. They have different roles, attributes, characteristics. This is, this is mysterious. This is stuff that like people write encyclopedias about. Okay, that there's no time to get into now. It's incredible stuff, the, the whole concept and idea of the Trinity. But here's the important thing and what I want to say about that, that these three exist in eternal community of love. You see, our God exists in community. The, the reason why He's the only God that can have love as His essential quality is that every other God exists by themselves. There is no one to love. There is no one before the God. These three exist in this eternal community of love. From all eternity past, they have been honoring and trusting and enjoying each other's community. From the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, there's been a community of love. Only the Christian God is essentially love. Because he was a community of love before he created us. And because we're made in his image, this is important, we're also wired for community. God exists in community of love. We are wired for community. You're going to find this. The closer you get to God, the more you're going to want to be a part of a spiritual family or a spiritual community. That's why local churches exist. Because we're wired to be in community. Because we're made in the image of God who is permanently in community. Why did God create us? You ever asked yourself that question? What was the point? Because he's lonely? That could be a legitimate answer. I mean, yes, he exists in perfect community and there's love, but why create us? I mean, let's be honest. Us is a bit of a mess right now. Why create us? Was he lonely? Was he needy? Did he want someone to just say how amazing he was? All the time. And so he created people who would do that for him. These are worth thinking about, these things. The answer is this. He's actually overflowing with abundant love. That's why he created us. See, it's like a married couple that are in love. Saying, let's have children that we can pour this love into. See, it helps when you bring it into a family context. Because God didn't create us because he was needy or because he was lonely. But God is love. He is and he's got love. And so we, we were created in love. The problem is that we've forgotten who we are and that we're loved. And what happens then is instead of centering our lives around God, we center our lives around ourselves. And that's what sin is. You want a really easy definition of sin? It's doing what you want versus what you were designed to do. That's it. I mean, people can get all heavy about it, but that's, that's the end of the day what it is. And when we do that, we offend God's holiness and we actually hurt his heart of love for us. He wants us back. See, he knows that's how we are now. That's the situation we find ourselves in and he wants us back. Now, here's the second point. How do you know that God loves you? God demonstrated his love. 
How many of you know words are cheap? It's very easy to say that I like you and everything's cool and when stuff hits the fan, now all of a sudden your words don't mean anything. How does that work? Words are cheap. You want to see stuff in action. I know that's me. I like to see stuff working. I like action. Action means that what you're saying is actually serious. You're taking it seriously because you're doing something about it. It's not just talk. Why do we get so frustrated so often with, with governments and politicians? Because we feel that there's talk but no action. I'm not saying that's true, but that's what often fuels that resentment towards those things. We want to see action. We want to see stuff happen. And here's the awesome thing, because God actually demonstrates his love for us. I want to read from a passage of Scripture. It comes from Romans 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. It says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We've now been justified by his blood. Now that's amazing. Just that little verse, that verse and a half that we've got there, shows the greatness of God's love for us in three ways. Number one, it shows how unworthy we are. Can you see that God didn't wait until we were all right? It says here, while we were still sinners. So God wasn't saying, as soon as you sort yourself out, then we'll make a plan. As soon as you are fixed, as soon as you can stop doing those things that you keep on trying not to do, as soon as you can master that thing, we can talk. No. While we were still sinners. This should be liberating to some of you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we were lovable, but despite the fact that we were so unlovable. Another thing that just in this verse that highlights the greatness of God's love is how costly it was. He actually died. It's recorded history. And again, you can go and debate it. It's not only recorded by Christians. It's recorded by Romans. It's recorded by Jews. It's recorded by Christians. These aren't things that are really up for debate. I mean, if you want to go into it, you can. But I can tell you now, historically, Jesus Christ died. Dead. And just to make sure, stab, blood, water, dead. Let's bury him. That's a big price to pay. Jesus doesn't love us by giving us an hour of his time. He gives up every drop of blood. I want to say something and hear this. Jesus would rather die than live without you. And that's what he did. He would rather die than live without you. Are you starting to get how much he loves you? Is this working? Am I, am I reading the notebook? Is your memory coming back? At the end of this, are we going to dance? Because it's incredible what he's actually done. It was costly. And the third thing that you can see from this verse is... God's love is great because of the value of the gift His love gives. We've been justified. Justified is one of those words I don't often use. And the easy way to understand what the word justified means is they say, just as if I'd never sinned. Okay, that's just a, an easy, simple way to remember it. But that's what justified means. It's just as if I'd never sinned. So something incredible and supernatural happened on the cross. See, when Jesus was nailed there and he was dying, he took everything that we could possibly do, everything that we did do, everything that we were going to do, he took every sin on himself, God put it on him, and he put Jesus' righteousness on us, and he judged and punished Jesus on our behalf. I mean, that's crazy. Why? 
because He loves us that much. And you see the value of the gift that His love gives us. Because He did that, we are now acceptable. So are we acceptable to God because of anything we did? No. Literally nothing. But because of the value of the sacrifice, we're acceptable to God. This is amazing. I mean, that's just a couple of verses there. But anyway, do you think if you were the only person in the world that, if you were the only person in the world that Christ would have died for you? Ever ask yourself that question? It's an interesting one. Would he have done it for just one person? Paul thinks so. Now, Paul in the Bible, the apostle says that he he calls himself the chief of sinners. He calls himself the worst in the world. I mean, he was there executing guys, standing there, giving permission for people to kill Christians. That was what he was doing. And so, obviously, that weighed heavily on him. And he felt that he was the worst of the worst. He was the scum. And yet, Jesus met him. God changed him. And his life just completely shifted course to the point where he wrote most of the New Testament. And he leads a lot of even what we preach out of today and what we understand about God and the Bible comes from Paul's understanding back then. Isn't that incredible? And Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son who loved me and gave himself up for me. He's so convinced. For him, it's not a question. If he was the only person on earth, he's totally convinced that Christ would have died just for him. I think we so often get lost in this, God loves the world so much and, and he died for everyone. As if that makes you less special. As if, well, you know, he did it for everyone. If he just did it for me, I'd feel much more special. Now, he did do it just for you. It's, it's difficult to see that, but he did. Just you, just you, just you. It's incredible. So what do we have so far? We know that God loves us because God is love. Think of the Trinity there. And because God demonstrates love, think of the cross. And now thirdly, we know God loves us because God promises love. He actually verbalizes his love for us. In this one, think the Bible. It's filled with promises and declarations of God's love. There's a verse in Jeremiah 31.3. I've loved you with an everlasting love and I will draw you with cords of loving kindness. It's just a beautiful little verse tucked in the way in in the Bible somewhere, but it speaks about God's love for you. I've loved you. I love you with an everlasting love, and I will draw you, I will pull you in with cords of loving kindness. Some of the most powerful verses about God's love are found here. And again, it's in Romans. This is chapter 8, 38 and 39. Two verses. And it says this, and many of you will have heard this before. For I'm convinced, this is Paul writing, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this is Paul using his imagination. It's almost like Paul is trying to make an argument here and he's trying to cover all his bases. So he can't just say, um, you know, people say, okay, but what about death? Can death separate me from the love of God? No, 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 not life or death. Okay. What about things like angels and demons? Is it possible for them to separate me from the love of God? Okay, no. There's not height, there's not life, death, angels or demons. What about height or depth? I just want to make sure that if, can I escape God? Can I go away from his love? Can I go so high up in Simon Kong that it's possible to be away from the love of God? No, it's not, not height or depth. 
And so it's like he's covering everything that can be covered. And then just when, you know, he's like, you know what? Let me just make this extremely clear. Nor anything else in all creation. Are you getting it? There is nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. That's great news. Can we do an illustration, Ingrid? Come hither. (laughs) I want you to do something. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. A little bit more like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want you to do something. Take your hands. Put them in front of you. Both hands. Your left hand represents your love for God. Your left hand. Okay? Represents your love for God. Your right hand represents God's love for you. Now I want you to do something. Put your hands together like this. Now, your love for God is your left hand. Open that hand, your left hand. And can you pull your hands apart? You can try hard. The point is that you can. So you can, okay? Just let yourself do it. It's like, there you go. Can you, can you do it? Everyone do it? Okay, cool. Okay. You should be able to do it. Unless you've got a really strong right hand. Okay. So, so this is important now. Where I'm going with this is a very good question to ask yourself. You can let go of your hands. I'll, I'll have your hands back in a second. If nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God, is it possible for you to separate yourself from the love of God? Have you thought about that? Is it possible? Can you do it? People don't want to nod or shake their head. I was like, oh, what's the right answer? Just give me the right answer and I'll believe that. Can you separate yourself from the love of God? Okay, take your, take your hands now like this, at the wrists. If you can do that. Now, you loving God is your left hand. Release that. Pull your hands apart. This one you shouldn't be able to do. The illustration is that you can't do it, okay? Can you try? But you can feel. You, you shouldn't be able to do it, okay? Okay. Uh, Thank you, Ingrid. Thank you. Thanks, Ingrid, everyone. Yes, lovely. This is important because this is the kind of love that God has. It's not a hand grip. It's a wrist grip. This is the kind of love that even if you let go, even if you feel like God doesn't love me, or I'm not even sure that I love God anymore. I think I was into this stuff when I was young, but maybe it was a phase. I'm not really sure. Guess what? Even if you let go, God has you by a wrist grip. The love of God, nothing can separate you from it. This is security for you. This is awesome. We tend to um, imagine our relationship with God like the hand grip. Like God's grip of love on me depends on my grip of love on Him. But no wonder we feel so insecure about God's love. This verse doesn't teach that at all. It teaches that our relationship is the wrist grip. Even when I don't love him, he still loves me. I want you to notice something in this verse, and this is amazing. Check this. For I am convinced. Now, you might think that's not so amazing. Paul is saying something categorically. He's saying, you don't need to convince me. I know that nothing's going to separate me from the love of God. You don't have to sell it to me. You don't have to give me a whole case on it. You don't have to give me a book to read on it. I'm convinced. You know what that is? That's spiritual maturity. He's convinced that nothing can separate him 
from the love of God. You know what spiritual immaturity is? Here's a great definition. Confusing my circumstances with God's feelings for me. You see, Paul didn't battle with that at all. He didn't say, well, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten, I've been whipped, I've been, all these things have happened to me, surely God doesn't love me. No, you see, he doesn't equate what he's going through to how much God loves him. Because he's quite secure and confident in knowing that nothing can separate him from the love of God. This is good news. We want to be spiritually mature people. I mean, I mean, some people, you know, they pray and they pray for their partner and, you know, they just want him to love him back and blah, blah, blah. And they don't. And they say, oh, God doesn't love me. That's confusing your circumstances with a completely different thing, with, with the love of God. That's an immaturity in there. There is a rock on which you can build your life. And it is the love of of God through Christ. It's a rock you can build your life on. It's a place you can rest your identity. It's a place you can build your identity and your worth from. Because no matter what comes against that, no matter what bangs up against the love of Christ for you, no matter what circumstance, no matter what wave or wind comes against you, it cannot. It is unshakable. It is unmovable, the love of Christ for you. And it is Safe to build on. I want to qualify this now, and this is a difficult part of the message, so you need to be with me, okay? The love that Paul speaks of in this verse isn't for everybody. He's not speaking, you know, when I'm reading this, you're going, this is amazing, this is amazing, everyone can have this love of God. You know, he's actually not speaking to everybody. And this is difficult. I don't even like to really talk like this, but it's important to If you read in verse 39, it says this. This is for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that mean? It means this kind of love is for Christians. That's not very politically correct. Okay, that means, wait, are you saying this is an exclusive? I thought God was love. I thought God loved everyone. How does this work now that this love isn't for everyone? Let me explain it like this. And I hope I'm not oversimplifying it at all. But this hopefully will be helpful. In Scripture, there's at least three aspects to the love of God. And I'm going to go through these incredibly fast. One of them, caring love. This is the love for the Creator for the creation, that the Creator has for the creation. This is a love that God has for absolutely everybody. It's not limited. It's not exclusive. It's it's for everybody who He's created. And the Bible says that, you know, he's, He's... made the rain fall on the good and the wicked and the sun to shine on the good and the wicked. There's no favor in that. God loves and he cares for everyone with his caring love. Then the second one is this. It's an inviting love. Now, so many of us can quote John 3.16. God loved the world so much he gave his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't die but would have eternal life. So that's an invitational love. That love is extended to every single person on this planet whoever lived now and and will, okay? So that is an invitational love. So does God love everyone? Yes, he does love everyone. But I thought you said this wasn't for everyone. Well, the third kind of love, the one that Romans 8 speaks about, is a covenant love. This is a love for those who accept his gospel, who take his hand and are gripped by that wrist grip that we spoke about now. 
This is a love from which you can never be separated. Now that doesn't always go down well. It's not a nice thing to have to speak about. But it wouldn't be helpful to tell you a truth and to give you a half-truth. That's what these verses are speaking to, is that kind of love. So if you're not a Christian, I hope even now as I've been speaking, it's becoming clear to you that a Christian isn't someone who's just promised to live a good life. That's not what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who's been rescued by the love of God. That's it. We're people who have seen a hand and said, yes, please, I want that. I'm drowning. I can't make it. I realize there's a better way. I realize I was designed for more than what I'm going through and what I'm living for right now. I'll take that hand. That's all we are. At the end of this talk, I'll pray for people who are ready to receive that covenant risk-grabbing love of God for the first time. So let's move on, and I'm going to finish with this. What do we have so far? We know that God loves us because God is love, Trinity, because God demonstrates love, the cross, because he promises love, the Bible. And I could probably end the message there, but there's a whole other dynamic to the love of God, which I think is worth bringing into. And so four, we know that God loves us because God pours his love out. Let's read this verse here from Romans 5. 5. God has poured out love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. So the moment you take Christ's hand of salvation... Your sins are forgiven, and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. Now, you've got the spiritual software to be able to experience God in a very personal and intimate way that you never had before. Before things didn't make a whole lot of sense. Before you came to church, but you just did it because you knew you had to do it. But all of a sudden, when you've made that decision, and your sins have been forgiven, and you're a new person, and you've taken the hand of God, and and you have been what they saved or rescued, become a Christian, become born again, whatever the terminology you want to use is, as soon as that's happened, the stuff starts to make sense to you. The songs make sense to you. The Bible makes sense to you. All these things start to start to make more sense to you. And quite honestly, you know, we live our lives in the faith that God loves us, knowing that God loves us. Why? Because his word says so. Because we know that he is love. Because we know that he's demonstrated his love. We know that, that he has physically and actually died for us. We know that that's true. And we live our, la- our lives in the faith that God loves us. But God is so gracious that, that every now and again, we get to move beyond the faith of that into the experience of that. And that's what this verse is saying, is that his spirit comes inside of us and dwells inside of us and we sometimes experience that. Now, some of you will know what I mean, and some of you will be like, what is this guy smoking? That's okay. We have these moments. And, and you know, for me, sometimes they're few and far between. And sometimes they're a little more frequent than that. But those times, quite honestly, are often the highlight of my Christian walk, is having those moments. And it can happen reading the Bible. It can happen praying by yourself. It can happen, for me, most often where it'll happen is in in worship in a community like this. When we get together and we worship, and, and something happens, and just every now and again, not every time we worship, certainly not, but sometimes you just get, you just know that you know that you know that you are loved and that you matter to God. And you know what that is? That's just the Spirit of God inside of you just confirming that. You are loved. You are cherished. You're treasured. You're a child of God. Everything's okay. And all the stuff that we live Faith, you know, the faith of knowing that we're loved. Just for those moments, we get to, we get to feel it. 
Now, we don't live by feelings. I understand that. We don't chase the highs. We don't chase those feelings. But isn't it so awesome when God, just by his own grace, just says, come on, I love you. And every doubt and every fear and everything just dissolves. And just for a moment, you know, this is it. This is real. So what we have, we know God loves us because he is love. He demonstrates love. He promises love. And he pours out love.